May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. As a member of the Oxford Holy Club, which his brother John had started at the University of Oxford in 1729, and which involved a commitment to celibacy, Charles Wesley had never imagined that he would ever get married or have children. He was a Methodist, after all, a man committed to a rigorous life or method of prayer and scripture study, self-examination, and the service of the poor and the needy. But after struggling for years with chronic depression and a deep sense of loneliness, he married Sally Gwynn in 1749 at the age of 41. In 1752, his first son, John, was born and brought immense joy to Charles and Sally. At 16 months, however, John died of smallpox. Two years later, their daughter, Martha Maria Wesley, was born, but survived only a month. In 1757, a son, Charles, was born and grew up to be the personal organist to the royal family. A healthy daughter, Sally, was born two years later. A third daughter, Susanna, was born soon after, but died just shy of one years old. In 1764, Selena was born but survived only five weeks. Samuel was born in 1766, healthy, and in his adult years, he was nicknamed the English Mozart for his prodigious musical abilities. A final child was born in 1768, a boy, but died seven months later. Charles was 61 years old at the time of his son's death. Of the eight children born to them over the span of 15 years, five died. While never imagining how much joy children would bring to him, Charles adored his three surviving children. But he also suffered from an agonizing pain at the death of his five other. After the death of his firstborn, John, Charles sought to make sense of the seemingly senseless through a poem which he titled, On the Death of a Child. It includes the following lines. Dead, dead, the child I love so well, transported to the world above. I need no more my heart conceal. I never dared indulge my love, but may I not indulge my grief and seek in tears a sad relief. He should have closed his father's eyes and followed me to paradise. Yet nature will repeat her moan and fondly cry, my son. My son. While Fader and I have suffered the miscarriage of children, we have never had a child die to us after birth. Our dear friends, Dave and Shauna Anderson, however, had a daughter, Thea, who at 10 years old died of leukemia. And it was harrowing to witness their desperate longing for God to heal their daughter. Not all of our life's longings are this extreme. Most of them are of what I might call the garden variety sort, but still painful in their own unique ways. A longing to be reconciled to a family member. A longing to be healed of a chronic illness. A longing for a child to return to faith 
longing to find one decent friend, longing to be delivered from an addictive behavior or for justice in the face of personal injustice. When I came back to faith in my junior year of college, I felt an intense need to feel God as I had felt him when I was a teenager. I had gotten enough answers to my intellectual questions, but what I really wanted was a heart experience of God. But no matter how hard I prayed, I got seemingly only silence. After a while, it got too hard to pray the same prayer over and over, so I decided to give myself to something that I knew felt good, working hard. I love conceiving and executing new ideas. I love the challenge of marshalling a team to pull it off. I dreamt up conferences, and I ate deadlines and to-do lists for breakfast. In time, I became addicted to the next project because the present project never really did satisfy. For over a decade, I became the guy who did exciting things but never stopped doing. Why? As best as I can tell, I had a kind of black hole of dissatisfaction inside of me, somewhere in my heart. And if I stopped doing long enough, I might have to face that terrifying fear that God did not, in fact, love me, at least from my perspective. So I came up with my own surrogate God in order to numb myself to God himself because it was too painful to keep waiting for God to satisfy that heart's longing. Now, it goes without saying that it's very difficult to keep our heart's deepest longings indefinitely open to God without any reassurance that he sees and loves us. It's just too painful. Charles Wesley understood this from firsthand experience, and it's what he attempts to give voice to, I believe, in this nativity hymn of his, which he titled, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Now, my sermon today is a first in a series of reflections on Advent hymns that we'll be exploring together over the Advent season. Our hope with this series is that it will help you and me to sing our hearts out with songs that capture the heart of the gospel in this particular season of the church's life. What I'd like to do today is specifically three things. First, to offer a very brief biographical note on Charles Wesley. Second, to draw your attention to some key poetic and theological aspects of his hymn. And third, to tell you what I think are the two most important words in this hymn, because they're the two things you and I need to hear most in this time of waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled in our lives. First thing, who exactly was Charles Wesley and what made him tick? He was nicknamed the spiritual librettist of the Methodist revival and the psalmist of the first great awakening. Most likely he is known to us by the hymns that we sing that he penned, hymns such as, And Can It Be That I Should Gain, and Christ the Lord is Risen Today, and Heart the Herald, Angels Sing. He was born a preemie in 1707, the 18th child of Samuel and Susanna Wesley. He studied literature as well as Latin and Greek at the University of Oxford, and his mastery of the English language was both native and a skill he worked very hard to hone. In 1735, he was ordained as an Anglican priest, 
Though it wasn't until three years later that he experienced what he felt was a genuine heart conversion. Over the course of his lifetime, Charles composed around 9,000 poems, which is more poems than Robert Browning and William Wordsworth combined. That's about 10 lines of poetry every day for 55 years nonstop. Now, the number of his hymns that are included in the official United Methodist hymnal is actually rather small, only 51. That's about 0.5% of his poems that see the light of day. Charles honed his craft, but didn't always get recognized for his work. Now, one of the things that distinguishes Wesley's hymns is their comprehensive witness to Scripture. As one scholar observes, Methodist admirers of the Wesleys have sometimes taken, sometimes taken solace in the notion that if one day the Bible should disappear from planet Earth, its text could nearly be completely reconstructed on the basis of the Wesleyan deposit of hymns alone. There is, in fact, hardly any aspect of the Christian life that is not covered in his hymnody. You find creation, redemption, prayer, the sacraments, death, heaven, hell, judgment, Jesus, the Spirit, the Trinity, everything. Theology comes alive in his songs. Now, funny thing about Charles is he, he was often nicknamed uh, the worm theologian. Apparently, he made use of too many references to being a worm, as he did, uh, for instance, in this hymn, which he titled, What Am I, O Thou Glorious God?, that only names a sinner's given which lifts poor dying worms to heaven. In college, he also had a habit of barging into his brother's room, declaiming his latest poem while manically reordering John's books, posing a question without waiting for a reply, and just as suddenly walking out with nothing else to say. He was an artist. But mostly, Charles is best understood as a hymnodist, who wanted others to come alive with the true knowledge of God and the fullest affections for God. As one scholar puts it, to the free spirit, he brought biblical and theological order. To the liturgical tradition, he brought a dancing heart. And that's as apt of a description as we could get for Charles and a wonderful encouragement for those of us in an Anglican liturgical context. Ideas and feelings, doctrine, and emotion, the heartbeat of Wesley's hymnody. Point number two, what then are key poetic and theological aspects of this particular hymn, O Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, that might help us to sing it with greater understanding and a fullness of heart? You have it up there so you guys can see as I comment along. Now, one thing that might be important to note is that the meter, for those of you who care about poetic meter, <laughs> follows an A, B, B, C pattern. Just think back to eighth grade. <laughs> it goes from petition to declaration to declaration to result. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because it echoes the dominant pattern of the Psalms, which is a book that Charles knew by heart. Petition. Declaration, result. It's as if Charles is posing to us the question behind the question. What is it that you really want? Like, if you had to think about it, what do you really want from God? 
if you could only choose one thing. And Charles is saying, say it. Say it out loud. And then he poses the second question. What's true about God? Say it. Say it out loud. And then the third question. So what's the ideal outcome of your petition? If you had to choose one thing that you most want to result from your petition, what would it be? And Charles is saying, say it, sing it. Sing it out loud together. And trust that God is listening. Now, in verse number one, we see also how Wesley is highlighting the subjective experience of Christ's redemption, which is to say how you and I experience our own freedom and rest and strength and consolation and hope and desire and joy. In verse two, however, Wesley is shifting the attention to the objective work of Jesus, to what is true about Jesus regardless of our personal experience of him, that he is in fact the Messiah always, the pauper prince always, the governor of human hearts always, the crucified savior and the sovereign of the universe always and everywhere. Why is that important? It's important, I suggest you to understand This is a very typical Wesleyan move. The heart, Wesley believed, is the gateway to the true knowledge of God. It's in this way that Wesleyan theology is often called an affective theology, inasmuch as it, like Jesus himself, addresses it directly and repeatedly to our hearts, the seat of our desires. Now, the hymn begins with the imperative, come. This is, of course, Wesley's fundamental invitation to you and to me to say, come thou long expected Jesus. And again, come, come, come and satisfy our heart's deepest longings. In Wesley's hymns, Jesus is on the one hand the longing of all the earth. Hope of all the earth thou art dear desire of every nation. This language is echoed all throughout the Bible. For example, in Genesis 49, 10, we hear these words, a ruler shall not fail from Judah, nor a prince from his loins until there come the things stored up for him, and he is the expectation of the nations. In Acts 17, St. Luke adds, now what you worship is something unknown I'm going to proclaim to you. God bids us so that people would seek him, perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. No matter how far somebody may seem, that person is not far from Jesus' reach. The Roman poet Virgil, in his collection of pastoral poems written around 40 before Christ, prophesied a golden age which would represent the culmination of of the centuries in which a virgin would return and a new offspring bearing divine life would descend from heaven to earth to rule a world transformed by his father's virtues. St. Augustine firmly believed that Virgil had been inspired by the Holy Spirit to write such words, as the Holy Spirit does and has done all throughout the ages. Hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation. The capacity of Jesus to satisfy our longings is as expansive as the universe itself. 
But as Wesley sees it, Jesus is also the truest longing of every human heart. As he puts it, joy of every longing heart. This language echoes the language of Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. Jesus picks up on this vocabulary in his words to the crowds in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In Wesley's hymns, and this one in particular, Jesus is the longing of the nations. He's the longing of every human heart. And he invites us to say yet again, come thou long expected Jesus. So allow me to pose the question that if Charles Wesley were here, he would pose to you and he would mean it. What does your heart long for? When you think about it, of all the things that you long for, what do you most deeply long for? What do you long for acutely, earnestly? Or even he might say, what do you long for faintly? or even faithlessly? Or, what have you been longing for your whole life, but it is too painful, and so you've no longer asked for that? Let me end my sermon today by drawing your attention, as I see it, to the two most important words in this hymn. The first word is in line three. Fear. None of what this hymn offers to us or what God himself would offer to us is possible if fear occupies and colonizes our hearts. It's the law of the universe and the occupational hazard of a broken world. Our hearts are afraid. It's what they do. They fear. To be human is a fear, among other things, that God will disappoint us or ignore us or leave us in our pain in a way that remains unbearable to us. We fear, perhaps, if we're honest with ourselves, that we're not worth the trouble. We fear that we'll be left to figure it out on our own. We fear that our heart's deepest desires will never be satisfied, and we will be left only with sorrow or somehow less than this. This is fundamentally what I feared in my 20s and early 30s. God had satisfied my intellectual needs, yes, but not my emotional ones, not my heart. And it was embarrassing to even think this thought, but I thought to myself, maybe I'm not worth the trouble. Other people were. Only God knows why. It is, again, a common fear. Others are going to get good things, but not us. Others get their prayers answered. Ours fall on deaf ears. Others feel God. We're left an emotionally barren heart. Others get spouses and children and jobs, and houses, and money, and a good break, a happy Thanksgiving, a happy ending, but not us. And slowly but surely, fear suffocates all hope from our hearts, and we can no longer bear the pain of unfulfilled longings. So we bar God's presence to that part of our hearts. We lock it up, and we say, not there. Roam anywhere you wish in, in, in the house of my heart, but you may not go there. But just at that point when we think we can't hope or trust God anymore, Charles Wesley offers us the second most important word as a gift to our longing hearts. The word our. 
Now, you may think to yourself, isn't Jesus the most important word in this hymn? Yes, he's the Messiah, the King, the Savior, the Sovereign Lord. Yes, he offers us his spirit, our needs. But to say that he offers only himself is to misunderstand how he offers himself to us in our hour of need. He offers himself to us, among other ways, through his body, through you, and you, and you. I'm pointing at all of you. <laughs> and to the kids that sit nearby us. And to the new people that showed up today. And to the people that you might least expect or want to be an agent of God's hands and feet. J.I. Packer once said that the quality of your relationship with God is an index for the quality of your relationship with people. By which he meant that if there's something broken in your relationship with God, it will invariably show up in your relationships with people. You can't escape it because your heart is cut from the same cloth. So if there's something broken in the way that you relate to the Almighty, that brokenness will manifest itself in how you relate to other people. For myself, if I didn't trust God in this particular place of my heart, which I had barred, his presence from entering in, I would also lose my ability to trust the people around me in that same place of my heart. Worse even, it doesn't actually stay neutral. It becomes toxic. And so what I found in time is that I couldn't actually trust people into my heart. My wife, Phaedra, spoke to me the words of God. She said, David, you need to stop nitpicking people's flaws. You need to quit refusing to believe that they can meet your heart's needs. You need to keep having this high standard for others because all it is is you're dissatisfied with yourself. And you need to figure out how to trust that the people around you are, in fact, the provision of grace for you. And you know what, David? you need to have your heart converted again. She said that in a very loving way. <laughs> Charles Wesley's entire hymn is written in the first person plural, us and our, all the way through. I get to offer my heart's longings anew to God, but I don't have to do it alone. I can ask you for help, to help me to do what I don't think I have the energy or courage or I have lost the desire to ask anymore. And brothers and sisters, you get to believe that too, that the people around you can become the grace of God for you in your hour of need, that we can become that by grace. So we pray and we say and we sing, come thou long expected Jesus, come from our fears and sins release us, come dear desire of every nation, come joy of every longing heart. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Let me end this way. This is my invitation to you. What if the season of Advent were this extraordinary time that all of us together chose to open up our hearts to one another because we truly believe that we are opening our hearts to Jesus himself? What if this time of waiting in your small group, your friends that you hang out with, with the staff, you said, you know what? That thing that I've locked God away from, I'd love to try to open it, but I'm afraid and I need some help, so I'm going to ask for help. 
What if we became the tangible grace of God to one another this season of Advent? That's my invitation to you today and the weeks to come, the prayer ministry during the Eucharist. I invite you to come forward to receive prayer and to trust that God hears. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.